Welcome to the Starlight Pet Talk podcast, where we'll talk about and explore ways to help pet parents and future pet parents learn everything they need to know to have a happy and healthy relationship with their pet. So sit up and stay for Starlight Pet Talk, rescue, adoption, and pet parenting done right. If you're a fan of Starlight Pet Talk, you'll love our new line of merchandise. We have t-shirts, hoodies, and more, all featuring your favorite podcast logos and designs. Plus, we're offering a limited number of Starlight Outreach and Rescue items where a portion of the proceeds go directly to Animal Rescue. Our merchandise is the perfect way to show your support for your favorite pet podcast and Animal Rescue at the same time. So what are you waiting for? Just visit our website at www.starlightpettalk.com to order your merchandise today. Welcome to Starlight Pet Talk. I'm your host, Amy Castro. And I have to say, in all the years that I've worked with people and pets, and in my own personal experience with my own pets, I've never heard anybody say that they wish their time with their pet was shorter. I think if most of us had our way, our beloved pets would live forever, or at least as long as we do. And although we know that's not possible, what we do have control over is doing everything we can as pet parents to make sure that they live the longest, healthiest lives that they can. So my guest today is Dr. Gary Richter, and I'm really excited to have him here today. He is a holistic veterinarian, author of several books, including Longevity for Dogs, an individualized approach to helping your canine companion live longer and healthier. And he's the founder of Ultimate Pet Nutrition, which is a place where pet lovers can go for premium veterinary-approved solutions for their furry friends. So Dr. Richter, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited because the whole thing about pet nutrition, obviously it's nothing new and obviously it's been something that's been important for a while. But for me working in animal rescue, it's it's always been that juggling act of trying to do provide healthy food and the right things for pets, but at the same time be able to do that in quantity. And I've kind of maybe live that same way when it comes to my own pets. And I know that I can definitely do better. And that's why I was hoping today that we could talk about some of the things that pet parents can do to improve. And that's why I, I love the title of the the book, you know, live longer and healthier, because I think it is not just about the, you know, the length of a pet's life, but the the quality of it. And you had said the other day when we were talking before the recording, you know, you kind of laid out a couple of key areas that pet parents do have that control over. And the first one was nutrition. And it sounds like a dumb question. So why is nutrition so important? But I guess it's, you know, why is it so important for our pets? And what kind of mistakes have pet parents been making when it comes to nutrition? Or what kind of changes could they make to improve the quality of their pet's nutrition? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that to a certain extent, you know, it's an intuitively obvious question, why is nutrition important? But I also think that people don't they don't often give it as much sort of credit as it deserves. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a good way for people to think about nutrition is think about your car for a second. So like your car, my car, they're all designed to work on a certain type of gas, a certain type of oil, various other types of fluids. And if you put those various types of gas and oil in the car, it is going to run as well as it is mechanically designed to run. If Mm -hmm. I put the wrong kind of gas and the wrong kind of oil in my car, the car will probably still run, at least for a period of time. It's not going to run as well as it should, and it's going to be much more likely to break down over time. That is exactly what happens with nutrition. The only difference is, is that as a biological system, our bodies, our pets' bodies are a lot more forgiving than, say, our cars are. 
which means you can get away with doing the wrong thing for longer. But at the end of the day, those proverbial chickens will come home to roost and things will start to break. And when Mm -hmm. we start to think about, you know, what is optimal nutrition for an animal or even for a person, you know, the, the place where you start is what did that, you know, we'll call it a machine, a biological machine, which is our body. What did that machine evolve to thrive on? What types of nutrients did it evolve to thrive on? And, you know, I mean, the one thing that we can say without question is that every animal on the planet evolved eating a fresh whole food diet. Nobody mm-hmm. evolved to eat processed food out of a bag or a can. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we all know from our own health that the more processed foods we eat, the more problematic things tend to be for us. You know, if you're eating a bunch of preserved garbage, if you're eating fast food, whatever it may be, you know, you don't have to have a PhD in nutrition to know that, that that's potentially <laughs> going to be problematic for you down the road. The problem when it comes to animal health is that is exactly what everybody is being told to feed their dog or their cat. You know, feed this bag of kibble, feed these cans of dog food or cat food. These are highly processed foods that come with all of the baggage that highly processed foods come with. And we see the effects of that play out in these animals over years, whether it's skin issues, GI issues, onset of disease like arthritis or cancer or premature aging. All of these things can originate from a poor diet, a suboptimal diet. So really getting started on the right foot or at any point that it is possible to change and get these guys on an optimized, fresh, whole food diet is absolutely the foundation of not only good health, but longevity in general. Yeah, and I think as a consumer, when you're looking at whether it's the commercials or the packaging, it's the same thing with human food. You know, there are things that advertisers will say that kind of trick you into believing that this is something healthy. Look, it's beef flavored or it's beef. And it's like, okay, well, there's a big difference between beef and beef flavored. It's all natural. Well, yeah, there, there's poisons that are natural, too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, how is a person supposed to kind of filter through that and find what's best for their pet? Yeah, unfortunately, that's a really difficult landscape for pet owners, in part because, and it pains me to say this, but my profession is not necessarily making that landscape any easier for people. You know, when I was in vet school, what they taught us was, put the dog on a kibble that they do well on and leave them on that for the rest of their life, or at least until they need to go on a prescription diet when they're older. That's a disaster. And you know, and it's a shame, but I mean, that is the way that a lot of the veterinary profession operates. There is not a lot of education as far as nutrition goes amongst veterinarians. And there is not a lot of guidance that most people get from their veterinarians about what they should feed, which unfortunately puts the burden on the pet owner to do their due diligence. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to understand that you don't want to necessarily trust the person who's selling you the product to tell you why that product is superior. You know, that's just common sense. I mean, manufacturers, they have a product to sell. So what they're going to tell you is not necessarily the whole picture. Uh, So that means we as consumers have to educate ourselves about what optimal nutrition looks like, what's good, what's not so good. There are certainly resources out there for people to avail themselves of. My first book, The Ultimate Pet Health Guide, there is a very, very long and, and involved discussion about optimal nutrition and how to how to get from A to B with dogs and cats. And, you know, that's certainly not the only resource out there for people. I think people just need to take an active role 
in their pet's health care and particularly their pet's nutrition and not necessarily take the word of either what's going on in the pet store or the commercials that they see or unfortunately, sometimes even what their veterinarian has to say. And I think the quality of the research, too, is is really important, at least in my experience. It's kind of like the television commercial that says, well, you know, it's got to be true. It's on the Internet kind of thing. It's like you have to look at the source of the information when you're out there researching. And I know I've tried to do at least my due diligence in the recent years. And even when you do and you kind of get in your head, all right, well, I'm trying to avoid these certain things in, in my pet's food. And then it can become very tricky to find, well, okay, it doesn't have this thing, but it's got the other thing that's on my list that I'm trying to avoid. Is there kind of a hard and fast from the standpoint of looking at ingredients that you'd say, hey, you know, you want to definitely at least start by avoiding these certain things in your pet's food? Or is it not that simple? Uh, well, I mean, sadly, nothing's that simple. But there are absolutely things that you can look out for, things that you should, if at all possible, avoid. Certainly, you want to avoid things like any kind of byproducts, so meat byproducts, you want to avoid anything that is termed meal. So meat meal, chicken meal, what have you. The problem with those ingredients is you honestly have no idea what's actually in there because every batch of that stuff is that's made can be made from different things. So you really just have no idea what mm -hmm. is or is not present in those sorts of things. Also, uh, I would recommend that people avoid feeding foods that are very, very high in carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are not bad by definition. By that token, grains are also neither good nor bad by definition. I know there's a whole lot of concern out there about grain. Oh, yeah. We could talk about that for days. There are plenty of properly formulated grain-free foods out there that are just fine. Generally speaking, they're going to be fresh whole foods. There are also foods out there that have grains in them that are also fine. So that unfortunately is not a very, it's not a black and white situation either. But generally speaking, what you want to look for is you want to look for a food that has ingredients in it that sort of makes sense to you as a, as a human. Meat, vegetables, plus or minus grains, depending on the food. Most foods are going to have a certain amount of vitamins and minerals added into them, which is completely fine. But that's really what you're looking for. There's a lot of stuff in there that just looks off or hard to pronounce, unless it's vitamins, because vitamins can be a little hard to pronounce. But as far as food ingredients go, I mean, look for stuff that you would consider eating. So kind of keeping it basic, keeping it to things that you would eat as a human being and trying to avoid the meals and the byproducts because we don't really know what's in that. And so, sure. that you, you know, that's just kind of an unknown factor in there. Yes. So that at least gives people a place to start and still leaves the door pretty well open to mm -hmm. to having options. Because I think that's that's a challenge is sometimes you listen to other podcasts or videos about nutrition and sometimes people can get so hard lined about it. That it's like, okay, obviously I'm going to have to now raise my own chickens to feed my dog. And, you know, not everybody's willing or able to do that. So that that's very helpful advice. Thank you. You know, you bring up an interesting point that I think is worth highlighting, which is when it comes to anything that you're going to do for your pet, whether it's nutrition or anything else, I mean, whatever you choose to do, it needs to be sustainable. So right. I am more than aware of how much fresh whole foods cost. And, you know, if you're somebody that has like two big Labradors, it may not be financially feasible for you to feed a fresh food diet, you know, exclusively. Uh, right. You know, so my recommendation to people is find the best thing that you can do that is sustainable in your life. And that might mean feeding some fresh food and some processed food because that's just the reality of what has to happen. 
just like for me, it's not a situation that every single meal I eat is perfectly balanced whole food. If I go out and eat garbage food from time to time, it's not the end of the world. It's not a, it's not an all or nothing thing. So you feed as much fresh whole food as you can and do the rest with whatever becomes necessary, but just make sure that it's sustainable for you to do. Yeah, that's great advice. You know, I've been doing some experimenting myself and even with my own pets right now, I'm feeding for, I'm focusing on the cats for the moment. I've gotten some different options. Well, by the time you feed four cats, whatever it was that would have maybe lasted a normal cat, like I sometimes will say to myself, well, this would work great for me if I only had one cat. But because I've got four, this is going to cost me a fortune. And this cat's going to, you know, be costing more to feed the cats than in my family. And you get all gung-ho in the beginning and then the bills start adding up and you're like, yeah, this isn't going to work. So that's a great point. And I think the ability to mix it a little bit, kind of like when we were doing some healthy mail order meals and it's like, well, better to do it three days a week. And then if you can't do it five days a week, it's better than not doing it at all. So yeah, and that's exactly the thing you do. You do as much as you can. And that's probably a good time to, you know, if it's within sort of somebody's ability to do so, to have a conversation with a holistic veterinarian or a nutritionist or somebody that's a little bit more knowledgeable about about this kind of stuff to give you a little bit of guidance about sort of the best way to do this in in a sustainable fashion. Yeah, definitely. So moving on from nutrition, another thing that that you had mentioned, and I know this is also something that I have kind of questioned as life has gone on, is vaccinations for pets. You know, it used to be it was not questioned. You gave them everything you got from the time that they're first able to get those vaccines until the day that they die. And there's just been a lot of information that has come out and a lot of people are questioning what vaccinations does my pet really need and do they really need it forever? So what would be some thoughts on that that would be helpful for pet parents to make some of those decisions? Yeah, let's talk about that. So I'll preface this by saying that I am not anti-vaccine. I am, however, anti-over-vaccine. Probably most pets are over-vaccinated. And what I mean by over-vaccinated is that they're being vaccinated for diseases that either A, they already have immunity to, or B, the odds of them getting exposed to are so astronomically slim that there's probably no point in them being vaccinated. Without question, puppies and kittens need to be vaccinated. Full stop. There's no discussion there. Anybody that has ever seen a dog get parvo will understand the necessity of why animals need to be vaccinated. However, the reality is that most dogs, almost all dogs that are properly vaccinated for distemper and parvo as puppies will actually retain immunity to those diseases for years, if not potentially their entire life. Most dogs that were vaccinated properly as puppies for distemper and parvo will never need a booster again. And you can demonstrate that by running antibody titers. It's just a blood draw and find out what their antibody levels are to find out whether they actually need to be vaccinated because most of them don't. The only vaccine that is sort of a non-negotiable thing when it comes to dogs is rabies because that's a legality. Right. Um, you know, you, you, you don't have a choice in that. And, and if anybody's wondering, the reason why rabies is such a big thing is because not only is it 100% lethal to dogs, but rabies can be transmitted to people where it is nearly 100% lethal in people as well. So that's mm-hmm. why that's why the government cares. The truth is, is if your dog gets parvo and gets sick, the government doesn't really much care because people aren't going to get parvo. But if a bunch of people start getting rabies, that's going to be problematic. So, so, <laughs> Could be a yeah, problem, uh, yeah. so, you know, please, 
whatever your local your local regulations are as far as rabies vaccines go, please follow that. Outside of that, quite frankly, everything else is on the table for discussion based on do they really need it? What is their lifestyle? Are they really going to get exposed to it? You know, vaccines, as much good as they do, they are not completely benign substances. Vaccines, by definition, stimulate the immune system and cause inflammation. Neither of those things are things you really want to do if you don't have to. To me, the fact that on the calendar it says that a dog is due for this, that, or the other thing, that is the very beginning of the discussion. Like, okay, here's what it's due for. Now let's look at the individual and figure out what does it really need or what does it not need. Uh, and, you know, I think that's a thing that, that medicine really needs to work on is medicine should be personalized to the individual. You know, my healthcare needs are surely different than your healthcare needs because we're two completely different people. And, and I think sometimes what happens is, is the medical profession just wants to do what it says to do in the chart and move on to the next thing. And that's certainly the case if somebody's getting their vaccines at, say, like a vaccine clinic, because mm-hmm. let's be honest, that's how those businesses make money is by vaccinating. So they're probably not going to be super quick to tell people, oh, you don't need this. Right. Right. So, you know, th- these are the kinds of things that people need to think about. I mean, if you're thinking big picture, long term health plan, then you have to think about everything that you're doing now and how it may impact your pet's life down the road. Yeah. You know, you got me to thinking about a couple of years ago, I went to India and I had to go to the health department and get some vaccines that I had Ooh. never had. The only time I had some of those vaccines was when I was in the Air Force and I was going to be shipped off to the Middle East. And it's like, now you're going to get these special vaccines. So what that comes down to is, like you said, it's the lifestyle and the exposure. A person who lives in one place and never travels to a country that has certain diseases that maybe have been eradicated in the U.S., for example, they don't need those vaccines. But a person who's going to be traveling and being in different parts of the world might need those. The same goes for your pets. And I'm assuming it's regional to a certain degree. Oh, sure. Or is that not true? No, it's absolutely true. So part of it's regional. For example, if you have a dog and you live in New England, you're probably going to want to vaccinate your dog for Lyme. And while here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we do have Lyme, it is not anywhere close to the prevalence that it is in, say, New England. And we don't really vaccinate dogs for Lyme because it's very, very uncommon. And not only is it geographic, but it's also a lifestyle thing. I think a great example for dogs is Abortatella vaccine, so the vaccine for kennel cough. That is a Mm -hmm. vaccine that I never recommend unless a dog is going someplace that requires it. So if they're going to boarding, if they're going to daycare, you know, grooming, and the facility requires it, then fine, we'll give it. Otherwise, it's just not a vaccine that that I give. The bottom line is, is Bordetella as a disease is not that bad. It's kind of like if you or I were going to get a chest cold, you're probably going to cough for a week or two, and then you're going to get better. Big deal. Does that mean I'm going to go out and get vaccinated for that? No, it doesn't. Yeah, that's a good point. And I know, you know, one of the things that I think is important, too, for people, you know, have these conversations with your veterinarian when it comes around to that annual thing and you get that postcard or now, you know, that email that says Gunny is due for these things. If you don't know what they are and what they're supposed to be preventing and you haven't had a conversation with your vet to say, yeah, you know, she's had that for six years. Do we still need to keep giving that? What does that do? Here are the things that we do. You know, we either go to a dog park, we don't go to a dog park or for us. Part of the conversation is, 
We do bring unvaccinated animals right off the street. I mean, we try to keep them isolated, but my dogs and my cats might be at slightly higher risk than your average person for catching things, you know, that other people's pets might not catch. So have those conversations with your vet and, you know, educate yourself about what's being put into your pet, just like with the food. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, and and as it pertains to going to your veterinarian, you absolutely are allowed to, and in my mind, are encouraged to respectfully ask questions of your veterinarian. There should be no problem with that. If you don't understand what something's necessary for or whether or not your pet actually needs it, ask. If you find that your veterinarian is not receptive to respective questions, then you might need to find another veterinarian. I've always had a rule in my office, as long as somebody is respectful, I will answer your questions all day long because I want you to be an informed pet owner. It benefits me as well as you for you to be informed and to understand the rationale of why I'm recommending or not recommending something. That's always a plus. To build on that issue of creating a relationship with your veterinarian, I can only imagine how frustrating it can be when we get out there and we consult with Dr. Google and we read all these things on the internet from who who knows what sources and then maybe go into the into the vet with an attitude i'm not getting that you know i read i read i saw i blah 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 you know and it i think it is important to have a, a respectful conversation and ask questions don't go in and just start like acting like you're suddenly a veterinarian because you read a few articles on the internet <laughs> yeah no it's very true and there's a lot of information out there online obviously and you know some of it's good and some of it's not and you know like i say i mean if you see something and it raises a question then then respectfully ask it when you go in mm-hmm. and you know Maybe you'll find that, lo and behold, what you read was correct, or maybe the person that wrote it was a maniac, and and (laughs) I have an opportunity to educate you and tell you why. So one way or the other, it's a win. Being able to make an informed decision is always a good thing. Yeah. Well, one thing I would just put out there for listeners, too, is, you know, as these questions come up or as you're reading things that you might have questions about for your veterinarian, You know, write those questions down, because I think sometimes we get into the office and we're getting asked a lot of questions about our pets that we might forget the things that come up. And it's like, oh, I forgot to ask this or I didn't ask that. Those are definitely things that you can kind of plan for ahead. What are you going in there for? What's your appointment going to be about? And have those questions ready to go so you can kind of be efficient, not only with your time, but with the veterinarian's time as well. Along that same same lines of vaccinations, what about parasite control? You know, that's a big thing that we have, especially in Texas. Fleas are just rampant, and it's pretty much a year-round thing, or at least it feels like it is because of our warm climate. What are your guidelines or what do pet parents need to be thinking about when it comes to worms and, and whatever? What else falls under the umbrella of parasites? I mean, I'm thinking about worms. I'm thinking about, is heartworm a parasite? or is Yeah, it's a parasite because heartworm is also a huge thing down here. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think, I think again, those are things that you balance based on exposure, based on the sort of relative pros and cons of the preventative that you're using, and based on, like, how bad is it if my pet gets exposed? So mm-hmm. let's start with heartworm, because, you know, from a major medical perspective, that's the one that counts the most. If a dog gets heartworm and it goes untreated, they are more than likely going to die. Heartworm, for those of you that are not aware of it, is transmitted by mosquitoes. So that's not necessarily something that you have a lot of control over in the same way that you say do like fleas, Mm -hmm. which we can talk about as well. But of course, you know, mosquitoes are a very sort of climate driven thing. So it's heat and humidity. I grew up in Florida and, you know, when I was in Florida, if you did not have your dog on heartworm preventative, it was just a question of when they were going to get it and die. 
I live here now in the San Francisco Bay Area where many of my patients are not on heartworm preventative and they do just great because it's relatively cooler here. We have very little humidity, not so much heartworm. So it very much depends on where you live. You know, you can talk to your veterinarian about this. There is actually, uh, there's an organization called uh, the American Heartworm Society. You can look them up online and they have incidence maps on their website. So you can look up where you live and see how big of a problem heartworm is. So these are all things that, that are in your power to do, but just realize that the consequences of your dog getting heartworm are bad. And even if you do catch it, <laughs> just because I know as a rescue, we pay for it, the treatments a lot. Not only is the treatment quite expensive, well, you know, because people will complain, well, heartburn preventative is expensive. It's like, it ain't as expensive as the treatment. And yeah. obviously just the damage that's done to the animal's heart, the longer the worms are there. But the treatment can also be deadly yeah, in some parts of the process. Down here, it's an extensive treatment. I mean, no, it's, it's several true. months. It's, it's true. Heartworm treatment is expensive, is painful for the dog, and a dog can literally die from the treatment for, heart, for heartworm right. disease. You know, so it's, it's no joke. Right. It's a very, very serious thing. So, you know, heartworm of all of the various parasites is the one that you really need to take the most seriously. The other side of it are like fleas, ticks, and gastrointestinal worms. With the exception of tick-borne disease, it's very, very rare for a dog to get significantly ill or die from fleas, ticks, or intestinal parasites. So there's a little bit more flexibility from the standpoint of what you're going to do. Just as an FYI, if your dog is on heartworm preventative, they're also almost certainly getting a monthly dose of a intestinal parasite preventative. So you're covered there regardless. Again, in my area, because most GI parasites, again, it's kind of a heat and humidity thing. So there's far more GI parasite issues, say, where you live in Texas than there would be where I live in Oakland. Not to say we don't have the occasional dog that comes in with roundworms or something to that effect, but we just don't see it like you guys would see it down there. Fleas and ticks, on the other hand, fleas, for the most part, are they're a nuisance, they're gross and they make your dog itchy. <laughs> and if your dog has an allergy to fleas, the itching can be pretty severe. But usually that's as bad as it gets, except in rare occasions. There's a lot of choices as it pertains to flea control. There's orally administered products. There's topicals. There's natural products. To be quite frank with you, there's no perfect answer. The orally administered products work very, very well. However, there is some concern for side effects. It is not recommended to give those products in animals that have a predisposition to having seizures. And there is some concern that has been raised about could there be long-term neurologic-related side effects to those medications. Truthfully, I don't think that anybody really knows the answer to that question, mm -hmm. but the question has been posed. The topicals work pretty well. Some people have concerns about topicals in the sense that they, as a person, are going to get exposed as well because it's on your dog, so you're getting exposed. Is that a concern? I don't know that anybody really knows the answer to that question. And then, of course, there's the natural products. Natural products are never going to work as blanketly effectively as, say, the more pharmaceutical chemical-type products but they have far fewer side effects. So I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, your personal level of risk aversion, where you live, what the parasite load is, what your dog situation is. You know, if you have a dog that can walk around with a couple of fleas on him and it doesn't bother you and it doesn't bother the dog, then maybe that's a different calculus than a different situation. And I think the last thing to say as it pertains to like flea and tick control is 
depending on where you live, you need to think about take control through the lens of not only is this healthcare for your dog, but it's healthcare for you. Interestingly, your average dog can get exposed to Lyme disease and more often than not, they don't actually get sick. If a person gets Lyme disease, your life is ruined if it's not right. diagnosed and treated soon enough. Literally, it will ruin you. So, you know, if your dog is bringing home ticks, that is a problem for more than just the dog. Uh, yeah, kind of goes back to the rabies issue. You know, once it starts crossing species lines to humans, you're exposing more than just your pet, obviously. Yeah. No, it's true. And, uh, you know, your dog brings home ticks and then lays in your bed and then there's ticks in your bed. Like, that's real bad. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, what about heartworm in cats? Because I know that's something that, like, back in the day, nobody ever talked about cats being able to get heartworm. Sure. And now it's becoming more of an issue. I will be the first to admit I do not give heartworm preventative to my cats. You know, they're indoor cats. My barn cats, you can't catch them to give them anything. Good I luck, mean, every right? once in a while, we'll get a little we'll get a little flea medicine on somebody while they're eating and kind of drop it from the drop it yeah. from a height like, and hope it lands on them kind of thing. But, you know, we just do sure. our best with the outside cats. Yeah, so so – you know, cats are what's called an aberrant host for heartworm. It's not the natural host for heartworms. It is much, much less likely for cats to get heartworm disease. And the heartworms don't actually reproduce very effectively in cats either. So they tend to not get heartworm disease as severely as, say, would a dog. That said, mm -hmm. is it possible for a cat to get sick from heartworm disease? Sure it is. So I think for people who live in very highly endemic areas... That may be something to consider. I would never dream of putting a cat in the San Francisco Bay Area on heartworm preventative. It's just not right. necessary. I think even if you live in Texas and Florida, probably the odds are in your favor that your cat's going to be fine. I think it boils down a little bit to like, what is your personal level of risk aversion? Mm -hmm. So last major topic area would be general lifestyle factors that increase longevity and health. And that's probably bigger than all the other areas combined. But what advice do you have for pet parents related to that? Or what do you, what do you mean by that as far as lifestyle factors go? Sure. A lot of people, when we talk about longevity, people very rightly get very excited about, you know, a lot of the sort of technological advances, regenerative medicine, stem cell therapy, peptides, what have you. And that's all great stuff. And all very well, very well gone over in the longevity books that are coming out. But the reality is that diet and lifestyle is the foundation to everything. And you can throw all the peptides and stem cells at, at an animal or at a person that you want. But, you know, if they're eating like crap and they're living a high stress lifestyle, none of it's going to do anything. So that's what this is really all about is how do we set the stage? And, and you know, diet and lifestyle are the ultimate low hanging fruit when it comes to things that that anybody as a pet parent can do. It's not expensive, especially when it comes to lifestyle. That's a really easy thing to do. And as a benefit, you know, as a side benefit, it's good for us as people as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, what do we mean by lifestyle? A lot of it is very similar to what an optimal lifestyle would look like for us as a person. So we're trying to minimize stress. We're trying to optimize social interactions for what works for our particular personality type. We want to make sure that there's a certain degree of regularity and routine, particularly as it pertains to dogs and cats, because dogs and cats like routine. They like to know what is going to happen on any given day. Um, think about it this way. If you think about almost anything in your life that you've ever had stress or anxiety about, it almost always roots back to uncertainty. 
I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's coming next. I'm frightened about it. That's what mm-hmm. we all get stressed out about. It's just a, you know, the the particular flavor of whatever you're worried about changes, but that's what it always boils down to, right? Is uncertainty. Right. And that's the same thing with with dogs and cats. If they know when and where their next meal is coming from, if they know when it's time for walks, if they know when it's time for play, if they know what their owner's schedule looks like for the most part, they are going to be more relaxed and less anxious. And mm-hmm. and there, it is no mystery to science that stress and anxiety leads to higher levels of cortisol, which leads to all kinds of other problems in the body, insulin resistance, what have you. You could go on and on for days, but it puts excessive wear on the body and accelerates aging. It's true for people. It's true for dogs. It's true for cats. Right. It's good to know because there are there are many facets to it. And I think, like you said, it's the low-hanging fruit because it's something that we have 100% control. Maybe it's not 100%. Maybe it's 90% control over sure. it in some instances. And I know one of the things that we've tried to stress on this show, and it's come up in several episodes, and I'm a big proponent because I've made this error myself, is that when you are selecting a pet to think about what your lifestyle is and whether that pet is a fit and vice versa. And the example that I've given before is, you know, I had always, having worked at a veterinarian's office for eight years, I got to see a lot of different kinds of animals. And I had wanted my entire life, I wanted a Doberman Pinscher. Well, I finally got to the point where I got a Doberman Pinscher. And he lived a, you know, a good long life. He lived to be 13 years old. But I don't know that he lived his best life with us because I believe he had a much higher need for enrichment, for exercise. I mean, I finally got him a really awesome attachment for my bike. But even when I was a runner, there's no way I could run far enough, fast enough at five, two and a half to to get that dog the kind of exercise that he needed. And so I think he had more anxiety in his life and, you know, pacing and things like that because we weren't the active person that he really needed to have. Do you see that as being a big issue, like people just kind of picking the wrong pet for their lifestyle? Oh, I think that's a huge issue. And I'm so grateful that you brought that up because that's where this all starts. Like this whole longevity discussion starts before you even get the pet. The example that I always give people is if you're a person that works a 14 hour day and you live in a one bedroom condo, you better not get a border collie. You know, <laughs> or a husky. You, you, or a husky <laughs> or any number of other dogs because both you and the dog are going to be profoundly unhappy. Certain dogs have certain personality types, just like with people. I have clients who their lifestyle is such that they literally have the dog out walking on the trails five hours a day every day. Yeah, That is absolutely amazing, and I'm very happy for both those people and those dogs. That ain't happening in my life. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not that guy. You know, yeah. I, I, what I'm looking for in a dog is a sweet, loving, flurfy little dog that wants to hang out on the couch with me and is more than happy to walk for a half hour a day. And they're good. So right. like border collies are not my jam. One of the things yep. I love about being a veterinarian is I get to play with all these various breeds of dogs, but then I don't have to take them home and deal with them. So, uh, right. yeah. So if anybody's <laughs> considering veterinary medicine, that is a good part of the career. Is, hey, uh, same thing with animal rescue. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I have an employee with a 200-pound mastiff. I love that dog. Do I want that dog in my house? Hell no. You know, you <laughs> we just had get... a great Pyrenees that was living in our dining room, and it's like, God, he was such a nice dog, but that was just too much dog. I mean, he was as big as I was. I kept thinking I was just going to get swept off my feet by this dog right. every time you, he, every time he moved. You're going to lost in a snowdrift of white fur. But, <laughs> exactly. uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's really important for people to – 
not get a pet based on aesthetics. I like the way that dog looks. I've got a whole mental list of animals I would love to own purely based on aesthetics, but I never will because I know better. You know, so you got to pick an animal that works for your lifestyle and then you kind of tweak it a little bit. So like if you have a dog that needs a little bit more outing time than you then you can deal with with your life, have a dog walker come and walk the dog for a couple hours in the middle of the day. Your dog will thank you. Your couch yep. will thank you when it doesn't get eaten. So, you know, I mean, these are the kind of things that is really important for people to think about. And while, you know, it's never too late to think about that stuff, the earlier you think about it, the easier everybody's life's going to be. Yeah, because it becomes part of the routine, right? For you and the pet. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't want to leave cats out of this discussion, too, because I've actually got an episode coming up. I don't know if it'll be next next week or the week after with my my best friend, Bev, we've been friends. We used to show horses together when I was in like seventh grade, and we've been friends for 40 years now. And she has this cat, Cuzzy, that is not a normal cat. I mean, this is a cat that, I mean, the stuff that she does, I don't want to tip my hand on the episode, but the stuff that she does to give this animal mental and physical enrichment, because he's he's like a, he's not a Bengal, but he's like a wild cat living in a, living in a home. But, and I know not all cats are like Cuzzy, but. Uh, do you think that sometimes people don't take into consideration that cats need stuff that they're not just a potato to have around the house and feed periodically and scoop the litter box? No, it's true. I mean, cats are, they are predatory creatures, which means that instinctually they're on the prowl. They're on the hunt. And there's this weird balance between cats need a lot of environmental enrichment. They need a lot of stimulus, but at the same time, it's so critical that people keep their cats indoors um, oh, yeah. The statistics are so clear about the relative lifespan of an indoor cat versus an outdoor cat. I think according to the SPCA, the average lifespan of an outdoor cat is less than five years. It's ridiculous. Not yeah. to mention the fact that outdoor cats are absolutely decimating the wild bird population. It's a disaster. So yep. you got to keep your cat indoors, but then you're left with these, how do I keep my cat's life interesting if they're indoors? There's right. a lot of ways to do it. There's environmental enrichment. There's playtime with cats. Uh, you've probably seen these products called Catio. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, right? So it reminds me of like a habit trail you had for your hamster when you were a kid, except yep. it's way bigger and your cat can run around outside, but they're not sort of really free roaming outside. Loose outside, yeah. Yeah, but they get the sights and the smells and they can watch the birds and the squirrels and do all that sort of stuff, but they're safe. You know, so you can do it that way. You know, people can engage in playtime. You can you can sort of train your cat to hunt for snacks and treats throughout your house. You can leverage their predatory instincts and, and get them to hunt. So there's a lot of things that you can do. But you're right. I mean, cats are not they're not furniture. They're not supposed to just sit there and look pretty, although they're quite good at that. You know, keeping these guys interested and active is really important. And I think because cats are not very emotive from a facial expression perspective, I think a lot of people don't realize the degree of stress some cats live with because you Mm. just don't really see it because it's all internalized with them. Right. We've talked about this in a couple of different episodes as well. It's like, you know, whereas a dog is a predator, a cat is not only a predator, but also prey. So it's kind of like I'm going after something, but I'm wondering what's coming after me at the same time. And I think in my experience being on the receiving end of lots of calls for people wanting to give up their pets, whether it's dogs or cats, a lot of times it has to do with the lifestyle factors, like, you know, the, the poor choices that people make. 
but then on also not being willing or able to provide that enrichment, even with, with cats, you know, when cats are being quote unquote bad, you know, they're climbing on the counters, they're throwing things on the floor They're it's, it's because they need something else to do than what yeah, you're providing bored. for them. So yeah, yeah, they're definitely bored. Yeah. yeah so, sure. uh, definitely a lot of things out there you can do to provide, um, better quality of life for your cats as well. Absolutely. Um, anything else related to lifestyle factors? Oh gosh. I mean, I think that's, I think that's the biggest thing as it pertains to lifestyle with dogs. I mean, again, it's just a function of, you have to know your dog. What is a safe and healthy amount of exercise for them to get? What kind of exercise? If you have a pug or an English bulldog, you probably don't want to take them jogging. So you got to understand what works right for them as an individual and optimize their lifestyle based on that. You know, just like the conversation about vaccines, there's no one size fits all answer here. It's all individualized based on what your pet really needs. Okay. So I just wanted to wrap up because I wanted to ask this question because I see things popping up on my Facebook feed or on the internet, or I see it in my vet's office. You know, when we're talking about proving the health or being able to improve the health of our pets, what are your thoughts about pet insurance and how that helps? Sure. Yeah. You know, when I, when I first became a veterinarian about 25 years ago, number one, pet insurance was a terrible product. And number two, I used to tell people, well, you know, if you can afford $5,000 at a moment's notice and it's not going to hurt too badly, then you're probably fine without pet insurance. That number is now north of $20,000. Mm. Um, and pet insurance is a far, far better product than it has ever been before. When I first started as a veterinarian, there was literally one company. They had no competition, so they really had no reason to be good. Now there's there's a million companies out there, and there's all kinds of competition, and they're fighting each other for your business, which is great for you as a consumer. And the bottom line is, is you know, one of the most tragic things as a veterinarian that you will ever see is somebody having to make a decision to euthanize an animal that can be saved because they can't afford it. Right. That is a that is an absolutely horrifying thing. And just in case it might be crossing anybody's mind, do not think for a second that your veterinarian is going to be able to offer treatment for free purely because you cannot afford it. Veterinary medicine is a business. Episode right I have there. employees to pay. I have <laughs> rent to pay. I have bills to pay. If I do too much stuff for free, then I go out of business and nobody gets helped. And a whole bunch right. of people get unemployed. So I do everything I can, but it is not a fair thing for somebody to to assume that somebody's going to cover this for them. Right. So ultimately, the answer to the question is yes, pet insurance. Get it and get it early before your pet has anything that could be considered a pre-existing condition and do your homework. You know, the thing about pet insurance is, is it's exactly like my own health insurance in the sense of. You have to make a decision about, do you want high deductible or a low deductible? What do you want your coverage limits to be? You know, coverage limits could be annual. They could be based on specific diagnosis. Every company does it a little bit differently. And you just need to figure out what works for you, uh, both, you know, from the standpoint of what you want and what works for you financially. Yeah, that's a good point. And a lot of that, I think, has to do, too, with where you are in your life, your career, et cetera. Like, I remember when I first first got out of college and before I went into the Air Force, I didn't want to be without insurance, but I really didn't want to be paying these huge premiums because I was 22 and fit and I'm definitely different than I am now. And so I had this like catastrophic health insurance that sure. wasn't that expensive, but it would have covered me had I needed some major hospitalization. Exactly. Um, 
you know, now that I'm old and fat and, you know, you know now, now I might need a little bit more healthcare as I get older. And I might even take that same approach now because, yeah, I could probably do the $5,000, but 20000 that's the whole ball of wax, you know. It's so, oh, it's, yeah. And, you know, there's you know. very few people out there that can just drop that kind of money without thinking about it or even put it on a credit card without without worrying about it. That's a very, very hard thing to do. We have that opportunity now. I mean, pet insurance is it's an option. You know, what I always tell people is, is insurance is the one gamble in your life that you hope you lose. But the reality is, is chances are you won't. It's easier to shell out a certain amount of money every month that you can budget for. Because the reality is, is who's actually going to put away that much money every month to save for a rainy day? Nobody does it. I mean, let's be honest. Like, Nobody's going to say, I'm going to put away a couple hundred bucks every month to, to save for my pet's health care when they get old. It's just not going to happen. And the bottom line is, is, you know, <laughs> you may have a two-year-old dog and, you know, I mean, God forbid they run out in the street and get hit by a car. Well, you haven't had 15 years to save up money for when he's old. You need that money now. Right. So this kind of stuff yeah. happens. Yeah, I think we're going to do a whole episode here in the near future about pet insurance because I think it really is. There's probably a lot of uh, a lot more information we can provide people on helping to make that decision because there are so many options these days rather than back when the whole thing first kind of came out. So sure, yeah, I uh, know the the marketplace from a consumer's perspective is great. I mean, I'm not going to say it's inexpensive, and right. for the sake of saying it. Pet insurance rates do change not only by where you live, but by what breed of dog you own. Mm-hmm. Certain breeds of dogs are just known to be prone to health problems and their premiums are going to be more. So something else to think about when you're picking out a dog, don't get one yeah. that's expensive to insure. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. That's a, definitely a good point. Well, Dr. Richter, God, I feel like we covered a, a whole gamut of <laughs> of information, but I really appreciate the information that you gave us today because, like I said in the very, very beginning, we want to have that time with our pets, especially once you've broken them in. You know, it's like I feel like now, especially with my two resident dogs here at our rescue ranch, it's like you, you get them through that puppy phase and you get them to the adult phase and they're no longer chewing on the furniture and you've got them kind of trained. And I am reminded when I, even when I think my pets are not that quote unquote, quote, good, that when I bring puppies in, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, it's at least they're not at that phase anymore. So now you get them to this nice, comfortable phase where they're just where you like them and you want to keep them around as long as possible in that phase. So doing everything that we can to provide for them from their nutrition, vaccines, and and providing the appropriate lifestyle is going to keep them with us and um, all of us living happily together as long as possible. So thank you so much for all this helpful information that you've shared with us today. Oh, you bet. It is my pleasure. And, you know, there's there's so much more than that in the books that are coming out at the end of August uh, about longevity science, vitamins, supplements, peptides, regenerative medicine. I mean, it, it's the, the future is incredibly bright when it comes to longevity medicine for both people and pets. Yes, that's that's great. And we're going to put some links um, so that for those who are interested in learning more about some of the things that Dr. Richter talked about today and put some links so where you can see the different books that he's written on this subject, because it's just, you know, as much as we love our pets, we refer to ourselves as pet parents that, uh, you know, we need every parenting guide that we can get. And these are going to be some great guides for us to make the decisions that we need to make for our pets. So thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. All right. And everybody, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Starlight Pet Talk. We appreciate you being here today. 
make sure you share this episode with your pet loving friends because I think that this has given us all a lot of food for thought for lack of a better term. And like I said, want all of our pets to live as long as possible and to live the quality of life that they deserve. And this is the kind of information that we need to make that happen. So thank you so much for listening. And as we say every week, if you don't do anything else this week, make sure you give your pets a hug from us. You've been listening to the Starlight Pet Talk podcast. We're glad you joined us to gain new insight on the many loving ways to adopt and care for your pets. Be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you want more information, go to starlightpettalk.com because your pet can't talk. Be sure to join us next time for Starlight Pet Talk.